Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. This is quite an adventure, this going through Scripture. It's not easy from my side of things. I'm constantly coming up to passages, and I go, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say on this one. And then when the Holy Spirit opens it up, finally you think that's one of the best passages in the whole Bible. You know, it just happens over and over again. Because the whole Bible is God-breathed, but you have to have those eyes to see it. I'll start at verse 8, and I'm going to read down to uh, 15, and then I'll skip forward to the end of chapter 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Now, flip forward to uh, chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen, in his defense, this is before the Sanhedrin. This is the same group that's Uh, just been, you know, we've just had the 12 apostles uh, rescued from. In fact, what you're going to see happen to Stephen was about to happen to them, except Gamaliel, uh, that that wonderful rabbi, stood up and spoke into the situation and and stopped it. Uh, But he's not there now for some reason. And this time, no one does step up and speak, and it will go to its conclusion, and they they will execute Stephen. But Stephen stands up in this, in this chamber. They're all sitting again. It's a semicircle. He stands in front of them. And he gives his defense, which is a sermon. And it's not, it's not a defense. It's actually a, a prosecution. He gives the history of Israel. And his point is this over and over again. Our fathers never recognized the deliverers God sent. He starts with Abraham. Abraham's fa- in fact, Abraham had to leave his family and country to, 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 to enter into the promise. And then he, he, he goes to, he goes to uh, Jacob and, and with Joseph. Uh, the brothers hated Joseph. Here's, here's the deliverer. You know? uh, the, he goes uh, who, uh, Moses, of course, and talks about how here, the Hebrew slaves didn't receive him, didn't recognize him. Uh, on and on. He goes right on through. And then he comes to the conclusion, and the prophets, every one of them who, who preached a coming righteous one, our fathers persecuted, and then, then here's the punchline, and you killed him. Our fathers persecuted the prophets who said he'd come, 
And you have now executed the righteous one. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now they were, when they heard these, this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I, I am not sure what gnashing of teeth really looks like. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you do. A lot of clickety, clickety, click, you know, or something. I, I don't, I think they're grinding their teeth is probably what's happening. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named what? Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. We're going to talk about Stephen, full of grace. Luke wrote the history of the early church, but he was, wasn't personally present at these events until chapter 16. I give you the verse, actually, where Luke enters the picture. It's 16, verse 10, and he suddenly begins to talk about we, because he's, he's now in the events. To gather all of this information, he had to interview eyewitnesses, ask them pointed questions to draw out their memories, and then carefully write down what they told him. Someone had to tell him about the martyrdom of, of Stephen. Someone who was there and heard and saw what happened. Someone who was at the debate and then later was present when the Sanhedrin gathered to try him. Someone who saw the look on Stephen's face and described it as the face of an angel. Someone who listened to his defense and remembered it point by point. Someone who saw and maybe even felt the anger that surged through the room when Stephen told them they had murdered the Messiah. Someone who watched everyone cover their ears and rush forward, dragging him out of the city to stone him. Someone who stood close enough to him to hear him speak as he was dying. Someone who heard him cry out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I suspect I know who it was. Have you guessed? I think Luke didn't have to travel far to get this information. That man was only a few feet away from him in the next room, awaiting his own trial. And when he allowed himself to remember Stephen, the first thing he said, probably through his tears, was to call him a man full of grace, because that was Stephen's gift to him. Would you say full of grace? Now, Luke focuses on Stephen, one of the seven men chosen to manage the church's benevolence fund. Earlier, he mentioned that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Here, he describes him as someone who was full of grace and power. 
And we learn that beyond his duties to care for the poor, he was regularly ministering healing and deliverance like the apostles themselves. Stephen was also an exceptional preacher. He seems to have understood better than most the radical impact faith in Jesus Christ would have on Jewish legalism. In no way was he disloyal to Judaism, any more than Jesus was disloyal. But he did recognize that the Messiah's coming had initiated a new era in God's dealing with the human race. In particular, he recognized that the temple and the law of Moses had found their fulfillment in Christ. And it was his preaching on these two topics which formed the basis of the formal charges made against him. His accusers claimed he had spoken against the temple and Moses, but undoubtedly his only crime was that he proclaimed the same truths Jesus had taught on these subjects. Stephen just accurately relayed what Jesus had taught, and that that got him in trouble. Jesus reinterpreted what it meant to truly fulfill the law. He repeatedly said that the attitudes of a person's heart must become obedient, that it's not enough to simply conform our outward behavior. Where did he teach that particularly? Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? You have heard it said, and then he quotes a law. And he says, but I say to you, and then he takes it right into your heart and, 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 and leaves you no room to escape. Uh, uh, you've heard it said, don't, uh, you shall hate your enemies. I say to you, <laughs> love your enemies. He says, don't be a murderer. I say to you, if you even hate them in your heart, you've killed them. The law says, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you lust after someone else, you're disloyal and an adulterer, right? Man, he just goes, and what, what, where are you when he's done? You're toast. But, but by the, I'll tell you where you are. By the time he's done, he's left nobody any escape hatch. I mean, we're all going, well, if that's it, I'm, I'm done. And that's where you're supposed to end up. And then you're supposed to say, God, have mercy. And then he says, I have had mercy. It's that evaluation that just goes, no, no, no. It's not just that you didn't shoot somebody that makes you not a murderer. You've been hating people and wishing they were dead all your life. You're a murderer in your heart. Don't you think you can escape that? You violated the spirit of the law. You need a savior. Somebody say, I need a savior. Aren't you glad you have one? Yes, it's, it's good news, but you got to get to the bad news first. Jesus declared that he was superior to the Sabbath. Remember, that son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a thing to say. And the temple. And that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. He taught that faith in him was the way to salvation and sanctification, not zealously trying to keep all the ritual requirements of the law. To those who did not believe he was the Messiah, such words would have indeed sounded like blasphemy. He also said things about the temple which were misunderstood, even when he originally spoke them. It, it was these statements which were central to the charges made against him at his trial. In speaking about the resurrection of his body, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. By temple, he meant his physical body. But those who didn't understand thought he meant Herod's temple. His words were distorted and used as evidence at his trial. And then to mock him as he hung on the cross. He also prophesied that the temple would be destroyed, saying, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. These words were fulfilled in AD 70. I mean, you know, if you ever saw a prophecy that was amazing, 
that is indisputably fulfilled. That is, a, that is an amazing prophecy. He stood there looking at the temple. These massive stones. If you go with us to Israel, some of the stones you'll see in the, in, when we, you actually go along the retaining wall are as big as a boxcar. I mean, a train boxcar. I'm not exaggerating. They're massive. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another. And in terms of the temple, not one stone was. We get to see a little retaining wall is what's left uh, outside of the retaining wall of the, of, the, of, the, of the mound that Herod built. But every stone down. How do you know something like that? How can you say something like that? What an awesome prophecy that was fulfilled. Any one of these statements would have gotten Stephen in trouble. All he had to do was quote Jesus accurately, and there would have been people who accused him of blasphemy. At some location where Stephen was ministering, it may have been the court of the Gentiles. I I think it was. A group of Hellenistic Jews decided to debate him, hoping that they could discredit him in front of the crowd. The group included men from a synagogue of freedmen, which was a title applied to any slave who had gained freedom, and also men from cities in North Africa, Cyrene and Alexandria, and Southern and Western Asia Minor, Cilicia and Asia. Of particular interest is the mention of, quote, some from Cilicia, since Cilicia is the province in which the city of Tarsus is located, and Tarsus was the childhood home of Saul of Tarsus. That's like who's buried in Grant's tomb. Saul of Tarsus is from Tarsus. Did you know that? Yeah. Tarsus is the main city of Cilicia. So we're hearing here that there was this group who were arguing with him from these different synagogues, including from Cilicia. Hmm. It's likely that Saul attended the synagogue made up of people from his hometown. And we know he became personally involved in this event at some point. So it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have been recruited as one of the spokesmen since he was one of their best young minds. We don't know whether he was present or not at the debate, but if so, it might help explain some of his fury towards Stephen. It would have been hard for a proud man to be defeated publicly in this way. It does seem odd that Saul became so violent toward Christians when his mentor Gamaliel counseled restraint. Doesn't that seem odd? When your regular teacher, the man you're studying under, the man who's showing you how to be a a good Pharisee, teaches restraint in in a major public way, and then you're, 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 you're overseeing the stoning, it's really odd. It, something's not clicking. Luke says that those who stood up and argued with Stephen were not able to stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Up to this point, it was nothing more, verse 11, nothing more than an open debate in front of a listening crowd. But now an evil element is introduced. Unable to argue against Stephen successfully, these men begin to work their way back through the crowd planting suspicion in people's minds. Now, I'm interpreting this differently than your Bible does. And you know who's right. Um, There's an odd word here. I mean, it's not an odd word. It's really a common word, hupobalo. I mean, it's, it's only used once in the Bible here and hardly anywhere else. So everybody's guessing. And, 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 it, and, it, there are, and I've looked at most of what you can find. 
They're saying it means to suborn to perjury. That, that they're literally, these men went and coached people to lie. It doesn't need to mean that at all. It means that they are somehow turning their opinion. They're accusing. I think what they did, they're in this argument, they're yelling at him, this discussion's going on. Stephen's nailing them to the wall. Scripture on scripture. He's anointed of the spirit and he's good. And, and here they are, they're defeated. He's, he's like Jesus when he dealt with them. Remember how he just left them stunned and speechless? So they're turning around. They're going back into the crowd, and they're beginning to talk. They're, they're working the crowd. They're going back in one at a time, in groups at a time, saying, we have heard him blasphemy. We've heard. And so they're turning the opinion of the crowd. This is, this is crowd work that they're going to do. They're doing. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's uncertain as to whether they were so rigid in their legalism that they actually believed these accusations or whether they were so desperate to silence him that they were willing to violate the ninth commandment by bearing false witness. Since Paul later claimed that when he had been a Pharisee, he had been blameless with respect to the righteousness required by the law. We can be confident that even if he was involved in the public debate, he did not take part in this dishonest campaign of slander. If Paul did take part in that, because you notice it says we've heard him blaspheme God. You got to go a long way to say Stephen blasphemed God. I mean, either you're so rigid, you're such a legalist that you, you, you mean, you just, you're just in a, you can't see straight. And that's possible. And you thought you were. Thought you thought he did. But Paul says, with respect to the law, I was found blameless. And I'm going to tell you something. Perjuring yourself, going out there and lying to turn the crowd is not blameless. It's a massive sin. It's the ninth commandment. And had he done it, he could not have claimed what he claimed in Philippians 3. I don't think he's part of this. I think somehow he's not involved in this part of it. The campaign worked. The men's words stirred the crowd to anger, including the elders and scribes who joined the gathering. And then they rushed towards Stephen, seized him, and led him to the council chamber for trial. There's no doubt as to their intentions. They wanted him found guilty of blasphemy and then stoned. I want you to hear my translation. Why do you think that is? Yeah. And Verse 13, and false witnesses stood saying, This man does not cease speaking words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and will change the ritual ceremonies which Moses delivered to us. And staring at him, all those sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face as the face of an angel. That phrase, Stephen, full of grace. What does it mean to be full of grace? Well, the Bible uses a lot of, of, of times, a phrase like this, grace be with you. Paul prays it. May the God, grace of God be with you. It's, it's many, many times. For God's grace to be with you is, means may you have undeserved help. Based on grace, may God help you. And then you find a lot of times where grace was upon someone. His grace is on you. Uh, recently, Luke had said, great grace was upon them all. What does that mean? It means favor. The favor of God, the favor of the public, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem loved them at that point. Great grace was on them. But this phrase, full of grace, very unique. And I, I'll show you, there's only used one other place. 
And it means an abundance of grace for others. Stephen, full of grace. How do you describe a person who gives grace to others? It's someone who's not judgmental, who tends to overlook people's sins and weaknesses and sees the person hidden beneath it all who God loves. This doesn't mean they have low standards or don't care what people do. It means they understand the power of the cross to forgive and the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and transform. It was grace that led Stephen to confront the Sanhedrin with their sin. He must have known. He was sealing his own death sentence as he spoke, but he loved them enough to tell them the truth. And it was grace that moved him to call on God to forgive them while they were executing him. Obviously, this kind of grace is rooted in love, but it's also rooted in faith. It's a heart where compassion and hope meet. It sees people's needs and God's supply all at the same time. Do you see, do you know, see where I'm going with that? This kind of grace doesn't just see need. You can see need and feel bad about it. Like, oh man, you're in terrible shape. But this kind of need sees somebody looks beneath, make a distinction. There are people who, are, who you might say are full of grace because they don't care what you do. But all they are is amoral. They have no moral standards. They don't care what you do. And you can call that nice and pleasant and easy, they're easy to get along with, sure. But they, it's simply because there's, there is no standards in them and so they don't, they don't really care what you do. That is not this. This cares, this does not miss the sin, but it sees the person. It looks at the person. It looks, whether, whether the person is poor, whether the person is sick, whether, whether the person is angry, whether the person is hostile or confused, it still looks beneath it all and sees the human being that's there and the love of God. And then that, that, that insight is combined with faith. That says, and God can reach you. And God can heal you. And God can change this situation. God can do a miracle. So it's combined, this faith comes together with this kind of love in the same heart. It's a heart of grace that gives grace to people. Do you know such people? They, they, they just don't seem to, you know, they seem to care about people they just shouldn't. You know perfectly well there's no point in messing with that one anymore. You know, and they seem to keep going after people. It's that, it's that kind of grace, that aggressive grace. That's Stephen. I mean, he's out with the sick. He's out with the demonized. He's out with the poor. Stephen's just after people. I want to show you the, the one reference. Turn with me to John chapter 1. This is the only other place in the Bible where the statement is made of anyone. Full of grace. I'll start at verse 14. In fact, why don't you read verse 14 out loud with me? John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is. Full of grace. And truth. Now skip down to verse 16, read it out loud. For of his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. And then 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Let's look at my, the statement there. There's only one other place in the Bible where someone is described as full of grace, and that is John describing Jesus. And the word became flesh, and, and it literally says tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is Jesus filled with? Yeah, he's, he's, he's full of this. Now notice something, and this is what's really clarifying. That, that grace is not for him. He doesn't need it. God does not give this kind of grace to Jesus. Why? sinless he doesn't need it you need grace i need grace lots of it he didn't need it now was there a grace to help him in his weaknesses and say sure actually he doesn't even grace in his case he deserves it you know when he was when he was being transfigured on the mount of transfiguration when he was he was headed out of here literally out of his holiness he was changing into the next realm and bypassing death he chose to stay after Elijah and Moses remind, counseled him. I'm sure he hadn't forgotten, but counseled him he must stay and die. He stayed here for us. I mean, he didn't need this kind of grace. So when he comes to us full of grace, who's it for? Yeah. So John tells us that out of his fullness, Jesus gave grace to us. We should remember that Jesus, pardon me, God didn't give Jesus this kind of grace because he didn't need it. He was sinless. He didn't need mercy like we do. God helped him in his weakness, but there was no sin to forgive. John says, for of his fullness, we have all received, and it says grace, and then the preposition in the Greek is anti, grace, anti, grace. He uses a preposition, anti, that means to be face up against something else. So he's telling us that out of this grace which fills Jesus, we receive one gift of grace after another. It doesn't come just once. It's a constant layering of grace. One mercy, one undeserved kindness after another. Do you see what he's saying? Grace, face up against grace. Face up against grace, against grace, against grace, against grace. You don't get one gift of grace. You get layer upon layer, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's why we're going to heaven. That's why we can do all things. Aren't you grateful? How many, how many need layer upon layer, grace upon grace? How many are grateful that out of his fullness, we get grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? Hallelujah. It's impossible to think of Jesus' earthly ministry and not think of grace. We see it in the way he treated the sick, lepers, children, women, foreigners, centurions, the demonized, the thief on the cross next to him. He didn't just love them. His love compelled him to help them, to heal them, to bless them, to offer them salvation, and finally to die for them. Stephen, full of grace. 
Like Jesus, Stephen was a man who gave grace to others. He overlooked a person's poverty and treated them with kindness and respect. No wonder the congregation picked him to care for the widows. No one would be overlooked on his watch. How do I know that about him? Who do you think they picked first? When we have a crisis, in the last, last week we discussed this, was we have a crisis where the widows of the Hellenistic Jews are being overlooked. The congregation is told, you select from among yourselves, seven. The first person they select is Stephen. Why? That man's not going to overlook anybody. That, that man has got a heart for the poor. And, and what's he doing on his, on his day off or his time off? He's out praying for the sick and casting out devils, just like the apostles. The man can't look at a sick person and not do something. For all I know, he's standing there when they're coming by. You know, they're, 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 he's, he's sitting at the table at least one day a week, uh, giving out the benevolence, the benevolent fund. Somebody comes up and says, oh, man, my kids are sick. My husband's died. You know, I got all this. He says, just a minute. Let's pray. Come on. And, and he's probably praying for them as they come by and he hears their story. The man's a compassionate man, caring for the poor. That's who they picked. They said, we want him. He saw the sick and demonized and ministered to them. No wonder he was not only full of grace, but full of power. God's not going to let you do that and not show up. He, he overlooked his opponent's spiritual blindness and hostility and proclaimed the truth, hoping someone would have ears to hear. No wonder the Spirit gave him the words to speak as he preached. The man stepped out. His heart drew him. And he even overlooked his own murder and prayed for those involved to be given mercy. No wonder Jesus stood waiting for this disciple to come home. Look at these statements. Read, read them with me. It, I, just, I just compared the way Jesus died and the way Stephen died. Look at this. Uh, Jesus says, you read with me, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, he breathed his last. Stephen, wow, even died like his Lord. Me full of grace. Am I full of grace? Don't answer that. <laughs> to find out, I need only answer a few questions. We'll get this over with quickly. How do I treat the lowly? How do I treat the sick? How do I treat those who believe differently? How do I treat those who hate me? Would someone who knows me well describe me as full of grace? You know, I don't think they would. I, I think they might say full of knowledge. But the Bible says something about that. It says knowledge puffeth up. Yeah, you can be full of pride. What, what would they say of you? What would, what would they say? Would it be uh, full of opinions? Really knows what he thinks on everything. <laughs> full of anger? I mean, there's people we know. It seems like they, they only got one button. I mean, it's just angry. No matter what the issue is, I'm angry. I'm angry. It's like you got one response, one note, Johnny. You're angry. Or, or, or full of fear. Some people just, just, all they can talk about is fear. They're afraid of this. They're afraid of that. They're afraid of this. They're afraid of that. 
can't do this. Oh, it's just full of fear. If we, if we really were to say, what, what do we know is full of fear? When they said Stephen, man, what a thing to say. Full of grace for others. I want that, don't you? I mean, I want, them, I want that said. So how does someone become a grace-filled person? Do I have to be one of those born with an easygoing temperament? I missed that one. My, my father did tell me when I met him. He said, you were a happy baby. I thought, how did that happen? <laughs> Must I score high in mercy on a personality assessment? How do I get rid of my insecurities, my self-centeredness, or my judgmental attitude? How does someone like me become like Stephen? Jesus points to the answer when he says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Would you say that? He who is forgiven loves little. Let's remember what happened before he said this. Turn with me, would you, to Luke 7. I'll start at verse 36. You know this story, but you just got to hear this again because Jesus is really going after this very thing. Luke 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at table with the, at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He'd know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since I, the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus just told Simon... You don't get it. You don't love me because you don't think you need any grace. You're real satisfied with the way you live. You're a good man and she's a bad woman in your mind. But honestly, from God's point of view, you're as bad as she is. Probably worse. And she, recognizing her sin... And isn't it easier to recognize moral failure than it is to recognize those terrible attitudes of pride and, and religious things, the, the pride, the self-satisfaction, the, the judgmental spirit? He said that's why he called it a log in one place. Remember that? 
He said, you got a log in your eye and this person over here has got a little speck and you're running around picking specks out of everybody. Why don't you get that judgmental attitude out of here? <laughs> get rid of the log and then maybe you'd be helpful to other people. Jesus constantly went at this thing. Where, where does it come from that I don't love him? And you see, when I realize how much grace I've received, how do I not give you grace? When I know how much I need grace, how weak and sinful I am, when I realize that without his mercy, I'm done in a moment, how do I judge you? It just changes the equation. I don't know what happened to Stephen. I don't know his history, but that, this man's gone through some stuff, I'll guarantee you. There's a humility in him. He's not judgmental, though he's very committed to what he believes. So grace is something we must receive before we can give it to others. We aren't born with it. It isn't the pleasant temperament. It's a gift we pass on. A grace-filled person is first of all someone who recognizes how much grace has been given to them. Who in here you've received a lot of grace? It's a good thing, huh? In other words, someone who's humble and thankful, but staying humble and thankful is much easier said than done. Here are four ways God humbles us. The first one I have is failure. We fall short of God's standards on our, or our own standards and are forced to face our weakness, temptations, disappointments, lack of self-discipline. My grandfather had a saying, a man, until a man's been broken, he's no good. And what did he mean by that? Crushed, ruined? No. What's, what's, what's got to get broken? In my, yeah, pride. Ambition, self-reliance. There's something that has to get humbled in a man and broken. And it's always oh, it painful. It's, it's just like, it's like a dying, isn't it? And then when they're done on the when when that's gone, they're a different person. The way they view others, and the way they view themselves, the way they view life. Something of that ambition, that pride, that drive for self gets snapped in a man. You, you and I have all observed it. The shallowest people we know are those who've lived sheltered lives. Those who have not gone through much pain. Those who seem to have an easy life. Doors seem to open for them. If things have gone well, they've gone easily. And you also notice they're very shallow. Something about the human makeup, pain, disappointments, failures, are an essential part of developing us as compassionate, kind, thoughtful people. Suffering. We learn to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. That's just a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 1. Illness, miserable work environment, depression. You know, you, you, you minister to somebody out of your own experiences of finding grace. When you've fallen, when you struggled in areas, you're tender. Is there anything worse than a person who was able to kick cigarettes easy? 
You know the guy? They're looking at you and going, throw that nasty thing away. What's the matter with you? I always had that. I smoked for 20 years, you know. And I decided one day I'm not smoking anymore. And I threw it away and I haven't touched a thing since, you know. And you're going, well, good for you. Because <laughs> I'm wearing a patch, you know. And I, <laughs> and, and, I mean, you, you know, you sweat bullets over this sucker. You, you can't, it's, a, you know. You, you've, you've cried, you've begged God. I mean, you've gone through all of this, and this guy just threw it away, and that was it, you know. And he's a terror, isn't he? He's just a terror. He's judging everybody left and right. Who, who do you want to talk to? The one, that, one that went through the same pain you did, and there's a tenderness and a patience with you. I have people, I, I, mine, I, you know, I've told you many times, I've went through depression. So people will come up to me and I, I'll, every so often I'll say to somebody, look, because uh, I, know, I know what they're thinking. You do not annoy me when you come back time again. You are not a problem to me. Don't think I think because I prayed for you last week. You should be, you know, chipper today. <laughs> okay? I get it. I lived it. Frankly, I still get my little tastes of it. This has been an interesting year. I've had several. I'm not throwing rocks at you. I'll pray for you as often as you need it. Next 10 years, okay? Do you understand? And when I say that to them, they think, because see, I know it's like having a disease. You can't just fix it. But I know that because I've been through it. So I'm tender and patient with you. And then you get, but when you get with people who haven't, they're going, cheer up, look around you. What's the matter with you? Everything's happy. Good, you know. I know. I know it is. And I don't know why I feel like I feel. And I can't get rid of this thing. See, but I've suffered it. So I'm compassionate with those who are. God uses these things. He, use, he uses our failures. He, he uses our sufferings. Now, he, here's a good one. He also uses the word of God. If I read it with an open heart, the Bible often corrects me and points me back to God's path. As I read, I recognize the difference between my way and his way, and I repent and ask for help. That is the best way. Paul says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. You can save yourself a whole lot of trouble. I put two Proverbs together. What is it? The word of reproof is sufficient for the wise, but the rod for the back of fools. Take your pick. You either have to go through circumstances to get humbled, or you can let the word of God work out. I prefer that as much as possible, though I find it's necessary to do both in my case. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. There was a point where I said, I've said to him, and I think he took me up on it. I said, if I have to suffer this every so often, if you have to do this so I stay usable, when things go really well, I get really proud. Uh, it's just a nasty tendency. I'm just to be honest. And, and I, and so it's every so often, I think you just got to go, here we go. And if that's what it takes so I can still be used, I prefer the pain. I don't say that in some kind of heroic way. I'm just telling you, if that's what it has to be. His spirit, if I harden my heart, his inner voice will go quiet. 
But if I stay surrendered, the spirit will grieve when I violate God's love and grace and encourage me to do selfless, kind things. You know the grieve? You know what it is to have your heart go, oh, why did I say that? That's a good thing. So it's when I recognize how weak I am that I, that I constantly need grace upon grace that my tendency is broken to be harsh and demanding toward others who are weak. My own desperate need of grace is the medication I have to take regularly to keep my pride in check. But it's worth it. Because when I'm full of grace, there is much fruit. It opens my eyes to see people I would have ignored. And it impels me to help them. And of course, God's not going to let me do that alone. So when I'm full of grace, I'll also find I'm full of power to minister to people's needs. One of you gave me a DVD recently, and I don't know who it was, and I can't even remember the name of the DVD. But I watched it uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, it went all over the world and showed different things. But this one really uh, has stuck with me. It shows this story of this um, young couple, and they are the beautiful young couple. They, they are, he, he's handsome and she's beautiful, and they got good-looking kids. And he was the vice president of a bank. They had a lovely home, totally, I mean, this is, this is just the young, upwardly mobile, gorgeous, successful couple. And they really got hit hard with, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they could not continue in what they were doing. And their hearts just began to work with them. You know what they did? They sold their home. They sold everything. Put what they could in suitcases. And went to China. They did not speak Chinese. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy, people. It really is. If it didn't let the Lord, you're, what are you doing? So they, they go to China with, with these suitcases and not even knowing what they're going to do there. And then the Lord begins to bring them these unwanted children. And they took in one and then another and then another. They now have 40. They now have a, 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 a home, a, a, a thing. And... I mean, these are children with, that are dying with disease. They're children that are with, with some, you know, horrible birth defects. They're children with mental issues and all of this. And this couple, I, I, she said it. I, I mean, she said, frankly, we, keep, we don't feel sorry for ourselves. We feel it's an incredible honor that God would ask us to care for these precious people. Now, did you hear the way she said that? Because you see something. That child may be very badly damaged. But the human spirits there. Is 100% whole. Do you understand that? That child may or may not be healed in this life. But I'm going to tell you something. The minute that child steps across. You've got one gorgeous person standing there. Do you understand that? They see that. Where do you get eyes that look at this, this wounded body, this little thing struggling to live? 
and hold them as they're dying? Where do you get eyes that see beyond the natural and recognize I have a privilege? God has actually asked me to love you and care for you in this season of, of life. Wow. You get it here. Full of grace. That couple is full of grace. Face of an angel. I'm sure by now you've guessed who I think told Luke about Stephen. I believe it was Paul. Nearly 30 years later, that's when the book of Acts was written. 30 years later in Rome. While, he was, while waiting for his own trial before Caesar Nero. This must have been so hard for him to tell. He could still remember Stephen's face. Not filled with fear as you would expect, but unnaturally peaceful and unafraid to die. Not full of hate as you would expect, but unnaturally full of love, of longing for his accusers to be saved. Not full of confusion, even though he was standing before the elders of Israel. He seemed to be able to look directly into the spiritual realm. Who but an eyewitness would have seen that face? And who but Paul could have told Luke? We know he was there overseeing the execution and no one was more guilty than he. Had Stephen called on God for justice? Think about this. See and avenge. That's a quote, uh, that Second Chronicles. Had Stephen called on God for justice, see and avenge, he would have been given it. You need to understand that. Psalm 69 promises the person unrighteously persecuted for their faith in God that God will give you vengeance. That passage I quote, you might read it later. You have a prophet being stoned for having been faithful. He's stoned between the altar in the tab, right near the altar in the, tab, in the tabernacle, in the temple. It's, his name is Zechariah. It's not the Zechariah you read there. His father was the stepfather for, the king, for King Joash. And had raised him and hidden him and protected him from his vicious grandmother. He'd done all of this. He'd raised this. And the king's heart turned. And had his own, basically, brother stoned for telling the truth. That Zachariah didn't die like Stephen. That Zachariah, as he was dying, said, Lord, see and avenge. And he did. You go on and read what happened. One tragedy, one horrible thing after another till the king himself was buried with the horses. Anybody grateful? Stephen didn't curse his persecutors. As Saul, this young, proud, legalistic Pharisee, standing there overseeing his execution, he said, what? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 30 years later, Luke walks in from the bedroom to the living room. And he says, can you tell me about the martyrdom of Stephen? 
Saul has to gather himself, Paul. And he says, I'll never forget his face. It's like an angel. There's no fear in it. There was no hate in it. It's just, he was looking past us. Cried out, he saw Jesus. As I saw him stoned. As I made him. Um, I, I oversaw the execution. And he said his last words. Lord, don't hold this to their account. So the first thing he said of him, Stephen, full of grace. Boy, was he ever. And no one appreciated it more than Paul himself. Would you stand with me? Our response to the word today is, am I willing to let God do what he needs to do Am I willing to be a man, a woman, full of grace for others? To have that sort of heart. It's not just something you choose. It's virtually something God must do. I must see my need and I must call on God for his mercy and grace. And then as I find grace flow to me, I give grace to you. Holy Spirit, would you come now? We, we, this is a dangerous prayer, but it's a wonderful prayer. What an example we have of, of, of Stephen in front of us. We ask you, Lord, today, would you, would you continue to mold us and form us and transform us? Would you continue to take out of us self-righteousness, harshness, pride, Lord, if any way that we lean on our understanding, we lean on, on how much we've learned, our Bible knowledge or our years as a Christian, if we lean on those things and look down on others, where we've become politicized and angry, forgive us. Give us eyes to see the human being, the one you love. Give us compassion, Lord. Let us see beyond sickness. Let us see beyond poverty. Let us see beyond other, other groups that are different from us. Let us see the human being and love and have grace. We ask for this. Whatever you need to do in us, we're willing to have that, that we might have the heart of Christ full of grace. And we ask your Holy Spirit to do his wonderful work. Now, just that, that is, that's not just a light prayer. You are inviting the potter to mold the clay. So if you're willing, would you say, yes, Lord. Hear us, our Father. We trust you. We trust your mercy and kindness. We trust your Father's hand. You're the potter, we're the clay. Come and mold us. And I say this and mean it. In Jesus' powerful name we pray it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.